first story deals with a subculture of heavy metal music that some feel is sending a dangerous message to your kids. The forces of evil on the dark side of devil rock. And I want to talk tonight about the devil and demons and witches and wizards. And we just mix it up with hardcore and aggression and come out with something that we face an original sound. Loud, fast, heavy, you know. Well, what do you got? What do you got? You're listening to Riff Worship, the podcast that attempts to answer the question, what makes a riff? Why do we worship all things the riff? I'm one of your hosts, Austin Paulson. With me, as always, is my very, very good friend, Dylan Adams. Dylan, how are you, buddy? Doing well, bud. How about yourself? I'm great. We have a fantastic guest today. This is a a person I would consider exactly why we do podcasts like this. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been listening to this man for a long time. Uh, He is a songwriter, guitar player, uh, record producer, Studio owner, I am of, co- uh, of course talking about uh, Andy LaRock of King Diamond and Sonic Train Studios. Andy, how are you, man? Thank you so much for joining us. Fine, thank you. Hope you guys are okay there. Oh, yeah. It's a little how early, but we're good, man. We're ready to rock. <laughs> Very early. Never too early for rock and roll. That's it. I agree. That is um, a true statement. I, I guess I want to ask first, since, you know, I think oftentimes people look at your lead playing and, you know, the, the, the the catalog speaks for itself, but I think what always interested me personally was your songwriting ability, your riff writing ability. The first question I'd like to toss to you is, you know, what what makes a riff to you? Why is a riff in a song so important? Like, why what what sticks out to you? Is there a particular thing? Like, what makes a riff to Andy LaRock? You know, I mean, I think it's got to be catchy. There could be like a combination of the notes and the. Uh, the tempo of the rhythm itself. And, you know, it's really hard to say. You just notice that some riffs are really, really catchy yeah. and some are not, you know, like Smoke and Water, for example. Yeah. That's a catchy riff. And um, if you go back to the 70s, there were a lot of really catchy riffs too, like, you know, ACDC, you know, back in the 70s, Black yeah. Sabbath, of course, you know, the first album with Black Sabbath, the first song, amazing. <laughs> And uh, uh, one of the one of the really good riffs I got hooked by uh, in my early days was actually uh, uh, Rock Bottom with the band UFO, Michael oh, Schenker. Sure. Yeah, cool. that riff, amazing riff. And a couple of years later, um, Randy Rose with Dossie, the first album, Crazy Train. Yeah. That opening riff is just amazing. It's still, you know, yeah, stuck in my head. You know, it's an amazing riff. And I think that's a combination of really good notes and rhythm, you know, and a lot of cool things, you know, and of course the sound too, you know. Absolutely. I mean, the two you just mentioned, those those are practically in our on, in our DNA at this point. Like I I yeah. immediately went to those songs in my head. I could hear it. Uh, and you kind of mentioned those early days, and I feel like I'd like to go back, uh, you know, to maybe that era, you know, maybe even before you got into heavy metal and before you picked up a guitar. Uh, Obviously, you're based in Sweden, you're from Sweden. You know, what was going on musically when you were growing up? Like, do you remember some of the uh, the styles of music that were popular at the time? Like, what were, what were the things that you were getting into? What were you hearing at home? I was always into melodic music. You know, it could be some kind of pop music. Abba was playing in the background all the time. Oh, sure. <laughs> but also bands like Sweet, Slade. Uh, T-Rex, uh, early Alice Cooper, 
Um, and a few years later, you know, I got into Blue Oyster Cult a little bit, and of course Black Sabbath, you know, stuff like that. But when I first list, started listening to radio, that was a lot of glam rock going on in the like 70, I would say 1973, 74, and 75, you know, around that area. Everything that was played on radio that time, influenced by and picked up you know and then you know i i, I uh, was looking for something heavier you know like uh let's say black sabbath kiss you know yeah. stuff like that you know but it started out with the glam rock area in the mid-70s that's for sure what's well, all good like pop writing sensibility and i can tell i mean like you mentioned with the catchiness i think there's like certainly something to be said about you know mark bolan and t-rex like when i listen to that there's just good songwriting structure um I, maybe fast forward now you know obviously uh sweden is kind of known around the world for its history and, and heavy metal what you know you are recording a lot of bands you've you've been very busy this year what what do you say what do you think about the current state of uh music in sweden is there you know what's the metal scene like what's the music scene like in general are there anything that you've noticed while recording there I would say nothing extremely, you know, different really from from uh, the pre-corona kind of times. You know, it's it's slowly growing back up together again with the club scene and and shows are coming back, you know, to kind of where it was before the COVID times. You know, so um, I wouldn't say there's a major difference right now from what I have seen so far, you know, because I know a lot of my friends and a lot of bands are still, they're, they're out now playing and you know, on festivals and all that, you know, so I can't really, really tell that there's a, has been a big change of anything except for the, everything has gone up in prices, you know, like renting buses and trucks and, you know, all that is crazy now, you know. That's that's all I know. But I mean, we haven't been out touring with King Diamond since late uh, 19. So it's going to be interesting to come back, you know. Andy, you touched on something earlier regarding uh, guitar tone. And uh, I wanted to ask a question. Um, you know, sometimes a, a guitar tone can dictate how the riff is written how the riff may feel just by adjusting uh, an amplifier settings, just by adjusting, you know, you know, a tone knob on a guitar. You know, do you see that? Uh, do you see that with your playing as well? Do you see that with anything you've written in the past of, hey, I've got this type of guitar sound. This thing's coming out of me. Uh, this type of guitar sound. This is coming out of me. I think you're totally right on it. You know, I'm totally I mean, Depending on what kind of guitar I pick up, if it's like an old, you know, Les Paul, whatever, you know, it's just I tend to play certain kind of riffs on that, you know, or the old Gibson Flying V I have, you know, it's it's just that tone of that guitar just makes me play different things, you know, and so does modern guitars too, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm working with ESP guitars, amazing guitars, you know, I mean. But they also have a lot of different models, of course, you know. So that's also a little bit, you know, depending on what model you pick up and play, you you it makes you play different things. That's weird, but that's the way it is. So the tone definitely affects or you know inspires you to play different things. That's for sure. It's been a while since you've worked with King Diamond a little bit and touring wise, but uh, you're coming to us from your 
absolutely gorgeous studio sonic train uh in sweden uh you've certainly remained busy i know you've been working with some bands as of late uh shining uh voodoo gods imperial child um this was a uh, I believe you started perhaps like recording uh, or owning a studio perhaps in like the mid nineties. Uh, you know, has that, it seems like you've always been kind of like doing some production here and there on your own records, but uh, what, what drew you to kind of start your own studio and start recording bands uh, on uh, as your, as yourself? It's a long story. I'm trying to make it short, but uh, you know, when we were in the studio, the first uh, albums back like uh, mid eighties, I just thought it was boring to, you know, hang around and listen to when Mickey was doing sound check, you know, and the sound engineer was like, oh, oh one more time, one more time. Hours and hours hitting the toms and stuff, you know. It's like, oh, man, boring, boring, you know. I just want to play, you know. When you're a young kid, you just want to play, you know, and have it done. But all that actually, you know, got stuck somewhere, you know, in my in my head, you know, so... After a couple of years, you know, when we've been in the studio for a couple of albums, you know, I kind of remember things we did back then, you know, what kind of microphones we used for certain things and what kind of amplifiers we used, you know, in the studio, what kind of mixing console and all kinds of stuff, you know. So I, after a couple of years, thought that, you know, this this is kind of interesting to, you know, create things in the studio in, in a certain way. And uh, a few years later, um, it actually started out when I thought I really need something to record my riffs on that sounds decent so I can present that for the other guys in the band. So I bought like a small, you know, four track tape machine, uh, drum machine, so I could, you know, just do basic things, you know. And I got it from there. So I bought like an eight, eight um, track machine, a small console. And people started to say, like, hey, that sounds really good. Maybe you can record our band, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. So that was growing. So back in, I think it was 95, you know, I uh, finally started out with, like, starting professionally, you know, with a 24-track machine, uh, tape machine, and a bigger console, you know, and some great speakers and great microphones and stuff, you know. So I've been doing this for almost 30 years now, you know. And... Uh, I learned from the different producers we've been working with what to use and why you should use that and why you should do that. You know, I did not read very much about it. You know, I just, you know, learned by doing, you know, back then. And that's still, you know, it's still there, you know. Absolutely. Well, you noticed like, or I'm sorry, you mentioned several, uh, you know, tools and technology that you would have had back then um, as someone who's, you know, played on records for a long time someone who's produced records for a long time. Uh, is there anything that you noticed as far as like technology, like trends? I mean, you've probably seen it all at this point. Uh, is there anything you wish you had? Is there anything that you have now that you wish you had back then? Or is there uh, technology that surprised you that's kind of like lasted, uh, you know, from those initial days that you still use to this day? Hmm. Interesting question. Well, you know, you still use the same kind of microphones as you used like 40 years ago, actually, you know. That's one thing that stays the same, you know, which is really good. I mean, there has been coming up so many new microphones, which, you know, can be really good too. But the classics, in the end, you know, they, they rule. Uh, then, of course, you know, I mean, 
when the computer came into recording, I mean, that's many years ago now, of course, you know, that was like a re revolutionary, of course, you know, and I would never go back to the tape machine. I was just a big half, you know, so that was a big game changer right there, right, in my opinion, you know, and I think everybody agrees with me. I mean, some people still think that, you know, tape machine sounds really good and stuff. Yeah, of course, you know, it, it can sound really good if it's, if it's um, well adjusted and all that stuff, you know, but I'd never go back to that, you know. That's too much of a hassle and, you know, computeristic shit, you know, to record on if you got a right setup, you know, that's for sure. I can only imagine having to sit there and cut the tape and splice the tape and having to go through that doing punch-ins uh, the whole nine. I mean, uh, forbid you had to do a another take or you messed up a take and the tape's running because I know tapes tape was expensive and it's probably even more expensive now at this point. Yeah, I'm sure it is, man. I haven't used that for... 20 years, I believe, you know, but I mean, just a simple thing that, you know, like undo, you can't really do that on tape, you know, right. <laughs> control Z is like, you know, I mean, if you erase something, you have to re-record it. That's uh, as easy as that, you know, and sometimes you erase things by accident, you know, and you're, you're fucked. You know? <laughs> so, so I really, you know, I think that the computer is, Man, it's such a big difference. You know, I'll never go back to tape. You know? And I mean, nowadays, there are so many emulators and simulators that can actually emulate tape, sound tape and all that. You know? So I don't see that as a big problem at all. You know? Well, as like a, you know, as a producer and an owner, I'm sure it comes with its own uh, challenges. Is there anything... You know, it's obviously a learning process. Is there anything that you would, any advice you would give to yourself on the first day of like, all right, Sonic Train Studios, here we go. Like, what, what have you learned from that first initial day till now? Like, what, um, you know, sorts of tips and tricks uh, would you give yourself on, uh, as a younger man, as a younger Andy LaRock? Oh, man, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing this for like 30 years, so... Um, one thing that's really crucial is that don't rush things, you know, because if you rush things, it's not going to be good. You know I mean? You really got to take time about things, you know, and be careful, you know, with everything, you know? And a uh, crucial thing is that, you know, I always start with the drums, for example, you know, putting up mics on the drums, you know, when I, when I produce bands and I just make sure the drums sounds good and all the takes of the drums are really good because if the drums are shitty, everything else is going to suffer, you know. The drums is like the base of everything in rock and roll, in my opinion, you know. At least when you start recording that, you know, when you're recording things, the drums so important, you know, that they sound good, you know, because if they do, everything else is going to sound killer, you know. I mean, putting on the guitars on a good drum kit, you know, it's great. And also the bass and vocals, of course, you know. So if, you, if you're if you too rushed with things in the beginning, it's not going to be good, you know. And that's something I really learned, you know. So I really try to take my time, you know, putting up a really good sound when we start recording. And, of course, it's really important, too. And I tell all the bands, please make sure you, you rehearse and practice and all that, you know, because it's going to take a lot of time in the studio and cost a lot of money, too. And make sure your instruments are all set up and all that, you know, because that also takes a lot of time. You know? So, yeah. I'm sure they appreciate all that, that care and energy that goes into it. And you've mentioned a couple of things already, like, you know, maybe like initial, uh, the, your initial process with working with a band. Um, you, you mentioned 
some great advice. Uh, do you, are there, is there any, are there any other like mistakes that you see from bands that like come in? Like, would you give any, uh, aside from like maybe, Hey, you gotta have this rehearsed, you know, you know, time is money, obviously. Uh, is there any other mistakes that you see maybe younger bands making when they enter in a professional studio for the first time? Yeah, I would say younger bands, you know, they 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 spend a lot of time in the rehearsal room, but I mean, you can't really hear everything that they're in the rehearsal room. So, I mean, the classic thing is like, wow, what are you playing there when they come to the studio? Oh, I'm playing this. What are you playing? Oh, totally different, you know, totally different things, you know, I mean, between the guitars, for example, and even the drums, you know, can be uh, things like the other guys in the band didn't really hear because they, they've been in a loud a rehearsal room, you know, so I, I usually tell them to sit down and kind of analyze what you guys are doing, you know, like unplugged, you know what I'm saying? Like go through the riffs so both guitarists know what the other guys do doing and uh, analyze your stuff, you know. And also another thing would be, I think like 30 years ago, band they they rehearsed more than they do nowadays. I think that's a trend. You know, they go into the studio and say, "Hey, the engineer or the producer will fix that." You know, you know. I mean, that's a quick fix. You know, if if we don't play the the right things, you know, I mean, the producer will fix that. You know, yeah, of course, you you can fix pretty much everything, but it's going to take time. It's going to cost you money. You know, so be well prepared before you go to the studio. That's that's for sure. It's important. Well, and you've uh, certainly had a, a long list of bands that you've recorded. Uh, you've recorded, uh, obviously, a lot of your own bands. Uh, you know, I always wondered, too, is it is it hard to kind of take the hat off at, at certain times when you're like, all right, I'm I'm a producer now. I have to kind of look at it from behind the booth. Uh, is it, do you find there are any challenges when going on the other side of the glass to just be a player? And, uh, you know, do you find it easy? I, I always wonder that. There is, you know. I usually don't like mixing my own music. Okay. I mean, I try to leave it to someone else because, um, well, when I'm a musician, you know, I want to be a musician and just play and let loose, you know, and let someone else, you know, take care of everything. And uh, I would like to be produced myself, you know, I mean, by someone who can tell me, okay, do this and that, or, you know, of course, you know, I'm, you know, I can record stuff, no problem, you know, but, you know, when it comes to the mixing my own stuff, it's awesome to to let someone else do that, you know. I think that's really good because then you can be a musician 100%, you know, instead of kind of, you know, uh, going uh, between the both of the roles you have, you know. Um, I'd, almost, uh, I'd like to take a step back again, too, uh, if I may, uh, just about some of your origins as well. Uh, obviously, we've been talking about uh, some of your influences, some of your history. Um, what what it, what was the was there a point like you remember uh, a, like a, an instance where, all right, I want to play guitar. Like what actually drove you to picking up a guitar and start playing and learning music? Oh, I think that was uh, mid 70s mm-hmm. um, when I heard a band uh, in my hometown then, Gothenburg. Uh, that. That were playing status quo, you know, status quo, the yeah, yeah. British rock and roll band. Sure. They were playing status quo songs, you know, and they were a couple of years older than me. I was just like 12 at the time. And I went to their rehearsal room and I thought, hey, man, 
this sounds great, you know. I mean, I thought they were great, you know, doing like uh, covers on you know, a lot of the status quo songs, you know, or the classical status quo songs from like early to 75 or whatever, you know. I thought, wow, this is cool. If they can do it, I'm going to try myself too. <laughs> so I got an acoustic guitar and a few months later I got a shitty electric guitar and I started out like that, you know. And listening to Alice Cooper, you know, and all kinds of stuff, you know, around that area too. But Status Quo and that band doing the covers of Status Quo was actually the trigger of everything, I believe, you know. And I wasn't into playing solos at all in the beginning. I was just uh, focusing on rhythms for a long time, actually. I was, you know, a rhythm guitarist. And I think that's really essential, you know, to to be able to to do good rhythms, you know. And then slowly, you know, after a couple of years, started out with like melody solos, like influenced by Thin Lizzy, for example. Yeah. You know, and um, then later, you know, uh, Randy Rogues and Michael Schenker, you know, and all that came into to my life, of course. You know. Do you remember maybe uh, what was your first? Uh, do you remember the first concert you attended that would have been that came through Gothenburg? I know you mentioned a few acts. Did any of those bands come through that you remember seeing? Yeah. Uh, I think I was 12 years old and uh, I was about to go to Alice Cooper. Welcome to my nightmare. There you go. But my parents said, hey, man, you're too young. And, you know, no, we don't want to let you go there. Blah, 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 you know. And then just a few months later, I went to see uh, Blue Oyster Cult on their uh, on your uh, on your feet or on your knees tour, I believe, you know, like. So that was, I was still 12 years old, and that was the first, you know, concert I saw in Norway, which was just, wow, that was so cool. <laughs> so 12 years old, you're seeing BOC, you're you're starting to play uh, guitar a little bit here. Uh, at what point do you uh, start transitioning into playing uh, with other people and playing live? Do you remember some of the, uh, the people that you first initially uh, started playing around with? Yeah, that was kind of early, you know, uh, me and a couple of friends had a band down the basement, you know. And we played a few Kiss things, you know, and uh, just made up a couple of songs, you know, when I was about 13, I believe, you know. But my first live uh, concert was probably in school when I was about 14, maybe, you know. Uh, that's about it. And then, you know, meeting other people, you know, and uh, going through different bands and, you know, meeting more people, you know, and slowly building up, you know, your thing, you know. Well, one person in particular that always seems to kind of stick out in, in your, your long journey is uh, Mickey D. Like, how do you guys get into contact with each other? How do you meet? Uh, the first time was early 80s, I believe, because they were in a, he was in a different band, you know, playing kind of the same style, a little, you know, melodic, uh, hard rock kind of thing in Gothenburg area as well, you know. And uh, we just, you know, uh, got to know each other, you know, partying a little bit together, you know, and uh, uh, it's a long story. Yeah, you know, I understand. But, you know, but um, then we played a little bit together, you know, for a while, and uh, he moved to Denmark with some some guys uh, to play down there with a, a Danish singer, and he did that for a couple of years. It didn't work out that good. Then he met uh, King in Merciful Fate. And uh, when King was doing his uh, own thing, uh, Mickey was asked to join as a drummer. And uh, this was like 80, 85 then, early 85. So, so Mickey quit that other Danish band he had 
and uh, he joined the King Diamond. And, and then they had problems with the guitarists in the studio. So Mickey called me and said, hey, Andy, you got to come down here, you know, and uh, and uh, do an audition with us, you know, because uh, it doesn't really work out with the guy we have now. So two days after, I quit my job, uh, took my Marshall amp, my guitar, took the train down to Copenhagen from Gothenburg, went into the studio, talked a little bit to the guys, you know, and they asked me to play around a little bit with uh, a song called Dressed in White on the first uh, King Diamond album. I sat down and just did my thing a couple of times, you know, and they recorded it and, okay, I just waited, you know, for them to let me know something, you know, and after a while, Kim uh, King came out and said, okay, you're in the band, you're hired. So, <laughs> that's cool. I was 22 years old, um, you know, I'm dreaming of rock and roll, you know. What a mind bender to, to know that at 22 years old, because I know where I was at at 22 years old. And I, I know the, um, I know stepping into something like that, uh, had to be a complete world changer for you, a complete life changer for you. I mean, as, as we're proof now. Yeah, it was, of course, you know, I mean, most like, uh, it's like now or never, you know, I'm you know, I thought it was a great uh, opportunity to um, do my thing, you know. And I wasn't really even, you know, that nervous when I came into the studio. I've been in the studio a couple of times before, you know, and uh, I just did my thing, I believe, you know. And uh, of course, I was excited, you know, but I, I wasn't really nervous, you know, because I always, you know, thought that being in the studio is like very creative. And if you don't do it good the first time, the first take in the studio, you get a, uh, another chance, you know, it's, it's different when you play live, of course, you know, because it's now or never, you know, but I did my thing and I thought the guys were great, you know, and uh, we got along good and, you know, yeah, I've been in the band for some years now. Yeah. <laughs> just a few. Yeah. Just the, uh, I mean, getting, you know, those first initial albums under your belt, uh, the one that always sticks out to me that, and recently celebrated a 35th anniversary is them. Um, you know, looking back on it now, uh, I know there were, uh, some challenges, you know, you had some lineup changes, you know, I, I wonder, uh, what was the headspace like going into making them? I know it's kind of almost like, uh, you know, with Fatal Portrait and to Abigail, obviously there's like a clear progression there and maybe with Abigail and, and them, there's like, uh, maybe more of a lateral, lateral progression, but I mean, some of the most progressive, uh, guitar work, I feel like just listening to this record again, uh, preparing for this interview. I mean, some of the stuff you're doing on here is absolutely insane. I wonder, uh, maybe take us through a little bit of what you were thinking going, you know, obviously there's some lineup changes. Were there any stresses? Like what, what was going through your head going into recording and writing them? Oh man. Um, to be honest to you, I mean, we had a really good album with, uh, Abigail, you know, the year before that was like melodic, you know, yeah, very, very fucking cool album in my yeah, opinion. You know? Absolutely. And, uh, I think we just thought that we we needed to do not that we needed, you know, because it's not that we need to do anything really. It's just that we just follow our hearts, you know. When we write music, of course, you know, we don't do it for other people. We do what we think is right, you know, and hopefully other people will like it, you know. So I guess that's the same feel we had with uh, them back then, you know, when we wrote the music. It turned out to be a little heavier and more progressive, and, you know, that kind of mirrors the whole 
uh, album in a, in a certain way, you know, just hard and heavy, you know, and progressive. You know? That's what we wanted to do at that time, you know, and I think it turned out to be a really good album, you know, and um, maybe a different thing that kind of affected everything on the album was that uh, when we started writing the music for that album, um, we weren't sure that the bass player was still in the band or Michael Denner wasn't in the band either. So we were actually looking for a bass player and a new guitarist you know, while we were writing music for the album, you know. So that might also be a reason why it's a little bit different from the previous ones. You know? Well, that's a good point. And, you know, what uh, kind of surprised me and maybe uh, people don't often see, you know, like King Diamond, He's, you know, at the front of the stage, he's got these, this, this amazing vocal style, uh, you know, maybe you wouldn't take him for a guitar player, but it seemed like you guys were, uh, kind of riffing back and forth through this writing process with losing a member or losing your guitar player. Um, you know, what, what can you speak, can you speak to his chops? Like what is uh, King Diamond like as a, as a guitar player, if you guys are kind of working on these songs together? Well, we're not kind of working together in that sense, you know, because he's writing his, he's writing his songs. And he composes on guitar. That's what he does, you know. Gotcha. Um, but he's got a very, uh, what do you say, uh, determined mind about how he wants it to be played. You know, he plays his riff for me when we sit down, you know, and let's say we record uh, the rhythm guitars for the album. And he sits there with the guitar and, you know, he, he tells me, oh, I want this riff to be played like this, you know, in a certain way, you know, and I... I kind of played a little looser or a little heavier, you know, stuff like that, you know. So he's really determined about how we want things, you know, to be played. Um, and I mean, he composes everything on guitar, you know, and he plays a little keyboard too, you know, so that's what he does. Um, and then I just try to translate, you know, his riffs down to to the real, you know, recording of the guitars on the album and it's not easy i tell you yeah <laughs> so with the the writing of not just this album in particular but working with uh king on these albums obviously he is known for his grand concepts his grand lyrical prowess um with with that in mind does the concept influence the writing uh with you know, say we come up with a concept like you did for them. Uh, does the mu is the music influenced by the lyrical concept or or vice versa? You know, are you writing something to go, OK, here's the concept. Ah, This needs to sound a little bit more haunting in this part. Or this needs to sound a little bit darker in this part, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's actually a combination of both, okay. both uh, things you were talking about here, you know, because sometimes, you know, a riff can, of course, inspire King to to write certain things around that riff. And when also when, when King has uh, a few storylines, you know, he will always let me know, you know, some of the some of the ideas and stuff, you know. And of course, that inspires me too to write some some riffs or even songs, you know, in a certain direction, you know. So I really think it's a combination of both, you know, that interacts. Well, you know, obviously, uh, being down a few members, I, I'm sure has its challenges, but. Uh, it also seems like with the additions of a new bass player and guitar player, it really kind of maybe reinvigorated the the energy of the band going into this record. What 
Uh, what can you say about Pete Black and also uh, Hal Patino? Like, what was their entrance into the band uh, for you? Like, from your perspective, like, uh, you know, what? How did it? How do you feel like they uh, affected the record going forward? No, I think they did a great job uh, back then. You know, I mean, Hal was a very energetic uh, bass player at that time. You know, with a little different and also modern sound. Uh, and he was playing with the pick, for example. You know, and uh, Tim Hansen was playing, you know, finger picked thing, you know. Yeah. So it made, you know, the bass sound a little, you know, more distinct and heavier. And same with Pete Black, a little more aggressive style than Michael Denner. You know, I love Michael Denner. He's a great guitarist and everything, you know. But I think Pete Black came into that album and, and did a great job too, you know. it's It was just an, a little different and more aggressive style than, than the melodic style that Michael Denner had on the previous albums, you know. So they definitely affected, you know, the the sound of the album too. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you were recording at like pretty much a brand new studio, right? Were you one of the first bands to record at uh, that studio in Copenhagen? Yeah. I think it was called MIDI Music or something like that. I can't remember exactly. Something like that, I believe. So we were one of the first bands recording there, yes. It was a pretty cool studio with great equipment and everything, you know. Uh, but I guess they didn't really tune in their speakers because uh, the production is kind of uh, thin. <laughs> you know? So uh, how quickly what did you start with? Uh, you know, uh, was it like more of a rhythm thing first? Like Mickey would lay down his tracks and you maybe lay down rhythm or how, how did the how was it structured going into the studio for you? Do you, or do you remember? I would usually start with the drums. It's usual. And I play along with uh, Mickey back then, you know. We never really used to click track or anything like that. We just, you know, we, we, we just came from the rehearsal room, you know, we rehearsed, you know, like crazy for days and days. I mean, six days a week, you know, I mean, easily. So we just came from there and everything was like really well rehearsed when we got into the studio. So it was usually me and Mickey. Uh, I was laying down like a cue track of the guitars for Mickey and we were uh, laying down the basics of that, you know, and then uh, we started with the other rhythm guitar and then bass on top of that, you know, and then building everything up, you know. So kind of a classic way, you know, and that's the way still do it here in the studio, you know, but now we usually you, you play with the click track and the metronome, starting with the drums and the pre-production, usually just one guitar or maybe two guitars and then building everything up, you know. Do you remember some of the gear you might have been? We were using that like Gibson V, uh, perhaps the some of the amp work that you've been working on uh, on that record. <laughs> I was using uh, the Marshall uh, JCM 800s, Classic. I believe, yep. and some um, some custom cabinets with 412s and uh, Celestian um, uh, vintage 30s. Of course, I still have the cabinets. Oh yeah. Oh cool. I still have. Some of the cabinets, at least, you know, still sounds great. That's awesome. And uh, that that was what I was using for uh, uh, rhythms. For solo, I was using a Galleon Kruger. Okay. You know, the small kind of combo amp yeah. you know, with two small speakers. Uh, I was using that for leads uh, together with a Ibanez tube screen. And just mic'd up the small speakers, you know, and it sounds great. And I actually did that, you know, on the... Uh, uh, later albums too, um, for uh, conspiracy and also the eye. 
that's that's wild to hear that it was a Galliard Kruger um, because they're yeah. predominantly known as a bass amplifier. Yeah, exactly. But they started out with a guitar amplifier, actually. That sounds really good. I've been trying to find one, but, you know, they were really hard to find. But it's going to be the first model. It's called the 250ML, I believe. And they're great. And I heard, you know, after I was using that, then we were working with uh, Chris Tangaridis as a producer. Mm-hmm. He was doing the painkiller with Priest. Yeah. And okay. uh, he told me that he got the Priest guys to try that Galleon Kruger thing out with that specific microphone and everything, you know. And I don't know if they used that, you know, but they sure tried it. You know, obviously there was a lot of energy and uh, effort that went into creating this record. And it's it's really stood the test of time. And we're still talking about it you know, 35 years later, uh, I, w- I wonder, you know, and, and perhaps you can speak to this for any of your records, like, you know, once it's done and it's out there in the world, like, what is that? How do you feel? Like, what it, is it, is it straight onto the next thing? Or like, do you give yourself time to like, kind of, all right, wow, I did this thing. Like for any of your records, when it's finally out there and, and uh, out there in the world for people to listen to, what was that feeling like just finally being done and getting those songs out there for people to listen to? I think in the beginning, it was a bigger thing than it is now when you release something. You know, The first, uh, let's say, four or five albums was just a major wow. So cool, you know, to have something released and stuff, you know. But when you release something now, it's like, it's more like a work thing, you know. You, you, you do it, you release it, and then you go on to the next thing, you know. But back then, you, 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 uh, you had some time to go back and listen to everything, you know, on the album and... I mean, that was a that was a totally different feel back then, you know, especially on the first couple of albums than it is now when you release things. Because now it's like, it feels like, of course, it's special, you know, to, to the fans and everything. But for you, working as a musician and producer, it's kind of an everyday thing nowadays, if you know what I mean. You, you're so used to doing that all the time, you know, so it's like no big deal in that sense anymore, you know. Except for, of course, you know, I'm looking forward to to the next album with Diamond. You know, hey, that's so, going to be that's yeah, going to be cool. So are we? Because yeah, absolutely. A long time yeah. since we did something, you know. So that's going to be fun. Love the single. Um, yeah, the uh, I'm certainly ready to see you guys live again. And uh, I, I wanted to ask too. I mean, with all of the uh, tempo changes and all of the the, uh, the technical playing, all the layers that are on this record, I, I know you guys have been playing a lot of these songs alive for a long time, but. Um, you know, what is the challenge in bringing something like that to life? Not only, I mean, from the record, it's it's there, like I can listen to it. And there's, you know, tools that we can use to make that happen. But in the live, it's it's just you and and the audience. Like, how how was that bringing to uh, a live setting? You know, I mean, if you don't play too many of the progressive songs, you know, I think it's really cool to blend in that into the live show, you know. But I mean... It's also super cool to play some of the simpler songs. For example, Halloween, which is a really simple song, but the audience just loves it, you know? So I think a good combination of a few really progressive songs, you know, that you really have to be focused on and concentrated when you play them, you know? That's really good together with some really kind of loose songs, for example, like Halloween, you know? Combination of that makes it fun to to, to play live, that's for sure. The, one of the things that I think really introduced me to this record in particular is the the music video. Uh, you know, I just can picture it in my mind. Um, you've done you'd done a video before this, perhaps, correct, with uh, Abigail? Yeah, we did. Yeah. And uh, so, what was the 
could I, I always wondered like what the uh the atmosphere was like on the set you, you know you're right it's like dark it's it's foggy there's this castle what was it like showing up on set and uh putting this down uh, that was magic you know yeah. that was totally magic i mean coming to southern of england i believe this was somewhere outside bath i i if i recall I, i'm not sure about it you know i can't really remember the location people have been asking me about that but i can't remember uh, there might be some documentation about that you know sure. but that was just magic i mean we came there in the daytime early in the morning actually to see this this like wow it's amazing great place you know and then filming you know when the uh when the sun was down and all that you know that was just amazing that was that was magic you know that was so cool to do that you know and then see the final result you know of course too it was great you know with the actors and all that you know involved awesome that was really cool did i uh i think i read somewhere you you perhaps broke broke a guitar on that set i sure did that was one of the guitars you know that i built myself actually oh, from, wow. from just a piece of wood it's not like you know a bottleneck there and a body there and stuff you know this was actually made from a piece of wood you know and it was a really good i still have it great guitar inspired by um the randall Rhodes v um the jackson v yeah um and i still have it as i said you know but uh haven't really used it much you know uh, since that you know time you know because in the video i kind of threw it down the lawn and picked it up and i later saw that the point of the of the the guitar you know the, the one of the uh, ends of the guitar were actually missing it was like a couple of inches it was like oh no it's still there in the lawn i didn't see it until later you know so that was too late you know and it's still like that I haven't done anything about it you know but it might be a cool thing if i ever sell that guitar you know yeah absolutely a little character um so uh, in the in the present day of King Diamond, you mentioned you know like obviously uh, there's there's been an album in the works. There's this, been a single out for a few years now. Um, is uh, can we look forward to some new King Diamond in 2023? Uh, I don't know how much you can divulge, but uh, we're we're certainly looking forward to it. Everyone's looking forward to that, you know. And uh, um, I sent. King a bunch of songs that we actually have started working on, you know, uh, with a little arrangement wise and all that, you know. And I know that he's got so many ideas in his head, you know, to put things down, you know. So, but then, you know, Merciful Fate came in between uh, doing the uh, last year's summer tour and also the autumn tour. And I think they're working on like a single right now. As soon as they're done with that, which will be soon, I hope. Uh, we will pick up the King Diamond stuff again, you know, so it's really hard to say when it's going to be, but I really hope it's going to be soon, you know, because I'm looking forward to to start working with uh, the music again, you know. So we have ideas, we have songs. Uh, it's just a matter of, you know, putting everything together and start recording it, you know. And I know you guys been waiting for a long time, but uh, <laughs> we won't disappoint you. Um is there a particular goal in mind when you put out a record? Like, what do you hope people get out when they when they listen to your playing? Wow, that's a tricky question. Yeah. Well, first of all, I hope they like the music, of course. Yes. You know, I mean, <laughs> um, I never really considered myself as a super technical guitarist, you know. So, I, you know, I always considered myself as a rhythm guitar player to start with first, you know. That, you know, hopefully, you know, they think there's a good song going on, you know. And 
I've been a melodic uh, solo player, so hopefully it, you know, uh, hopefully just people like what I'm doing, you know, I mean, I don't really know what to answer that question, you know, I mean, I do my thing and I really hope that people, I hope that they like it. I think it certainly comes through, uh, you know, you're, I've never heard anybody look quite like you. So, I mean, it's, you're very unique and uh, I always get a kick out of, especially kind of revisiting some of these records now. Uh, just some of the details that you're painting with such, you know, all these different brushes and such. Um, I wonder too, we've been uh, kind of talking about your production work as well. And, uh, you know, this uh, modern era of like writing music. Do you ever find time? Did you listen to much? Uh, you know, is there anything that uh, when you're you're surrounded by music all the time? So I always wonder, like, do you ever find time to listen to new music? Are you or are you just like, I, I can't, I've done it all day long. I, I don't know if I could sit with this now. Exactly like that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm working with like music um, five, six, or sometimes even seven days a week from like early in the morning to like kind of late in the night, you know? So when you get home, you just want to have silence, you know, usually, you know? Um, and I never put on like a metal album, you know, when I'm back home because, you know, I started to analyze, I start to analyze and, I start to work, you know, I, I, I couldn't do that, you know. But when in the studio, I listen to, of course, you know, the bands that come in here. And also they usually, hey, Andy, have you heard this? You got to listen to this, you know. And then we sit down and listen to their influences and, you know, pick up a lot of things from that, of course, you know. So I'm loaded with music, that's for sure. You know? So when I when I'm outside the studio, I try to get inspired by silence. <laughs> so uh, with that in mind, um, we normally do kind of a, you know, rundown of what we're, what we've been listening to lately. Uh, but maybe kind of a different spin on that question for you is what would be maybe, you know, a couple songs or one or two, maybe three records of from maybe your catalog that would best define you as a player that you would want people to maybe dig into as a gateway to get into, you know, anything from your catalog, you know, what would those be? I would say a welcome home mm -hmm. would be a good song because it's great solos and everything. I would say a sleepless nights. Oh yeah. And I would probably say, uh, a mansion in darkness. Okay. Oh, yeah. I like that. I like those picks. Those are three songs, you know, they good songs. Um, hopefully some good solos on it too, you know, that that would be a good thing for people to listen to if they never heard us, you know. Great vocals, uh, great lyrics, you know, great atmosphere, you know, which is really important. I love, I love the vocal uh, delivery on Sleepless Nights so much. Uh, that is definitely like a top top tier uh king track for me um the uh i kind of maybe to wrap things up uh please uh i'd like to know uh you know what what are all the things you got working on maybe in production wise maybe some bands that you're working with this year uh what do you what do you hope to accomplish uh this year in 2023 first of all i hope that we can pick up you know working with the uh, king diamond stuff again of course you know mm -hmm. 
And I talked to King a few weeks ago, and he said that as soon as they're done with Merciful Fate now, you know, we'll pick that up again and start working on that, you know, full time. Um, so, of course, that's that's the priority. But then, you know, uh, since we haven't been out playing, you know, for a long time, um, that's going to be fun, too, you know, to, to kind of prepare for hopefully next year we'll be out doing that, you know. But then, you know, in the studio this year, uh, I'm working right now with a band called Voodoo Gods, uh, a German band with uh, members from Poland and the U.S. and, you know, all over the world. And uh, later this year, there will be a Norwegian band called Cold coming in. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, uh, well, I got to check the schedule, but it's getting there, you know, it's getting full, you know. I've been talking with Lord Belial, Swedish black metal band too. Yeah. Yep. Uh, they're probably not coming in this fall, um, but uh, maybe to the uh, um, early next year. And I'm actually now talking with an Armenian band. Oh, wow. Okay. Called Ayas. They've, they've been around for like 35 or almost 40 years playing heavy metal, you know? So they were talking about coming over here for a couple of weeks recording, you know? That would be great because they're really talented guys, you know? They just need a good production, you know? And yes, that would be great to take them over here, you know? So it's getting busy, that's for sure. It's getting busy. Where um where can people follow you for any updates on the happenings on the studio or uh, anything musically you got going on? Yeah, it's it's usually um, Facebook on Sonic Train Studios. Um, that's that's where everything happens pretty much, you know. Or um, or Rock Official on Facebook, you know. Um, but not much is happening right on that page right now, you know. But soon, 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 soon. you know. Keep an eye out. Well, I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, I really appreciate getting the opportunity to talk to you about everything you've been doing and uh, in the studio and uh, all these classic, classic albums. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, guys. And sorry for uh, getting you up that early. No, no, all good. That's oh, good. No, this is perfect. I got, I got the whole day ahead of me now, so I'm yeah. good. All right, cool. Uh, for uh, Austin, Dylan, Andy LaRock, we'll be back next week talking about the riffs we love here on Riff Worship. Thanks for joining us.